As we get ready to look into God's Word today, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And yes, I'm, I'm kind of uh, moving a little bit uh, quickly past the end of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, again, we covered that primarily up to the end last week. Um, I didn't really get into the salutation of the letter. Um, not that the salutation is any less important, uh, but since we are uh, moving into 2 Thessalonians, my hope was and my, my desire is to continue uh, teaching through that which was important to Paul to teach to the Thessalonians. I think it is important that we note that in the book of Thessalonians, or in the letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians um, are written probably about two to three months apart, okay? So they're really, they are packed close together because as Paul is getting reports, he's writing letters to the church so that they can be strengthened in their most holy faith. Okay, so that's my introduction. Let me, let me move beyond that and, and pause for just a moment and um, give you a pastoral exhortation, okay? Because we've been out of practice from fellowship time, I just wanted to remind you why we do fellowship time, okay? Um, a number of years ago, we actually flipped our services. We used to do family school and Sunday school to begin with, and then we, we moved uh, uh, into a, a, this, this little quasi-fellowship uh, time, and then we'd have our services. We flipped that around intentionally for a whole bunch of reasons. One of those reasons, though, was to have a fellowship time. See, fellowship time is important for Christians on several different levels. Number one... Uh, Fellowship time is important because the Bible instructs us to have fellowship. And fellowship simply and, and uh, literally means the sharing of life together. And since it's Christian fellowship, it's the sharing of life in Christ together. So I want you to take advantage of fellowship time. Not just as a break between services, but as a time to reconnect with people. We also encourage people to be involved with small groups. Before a person ever gets involved with a small group, they will come to church. But before a person ever gets involved in a small group, they need to connect with people here. So please, church family, do a couple things for me. As you catch up to familiar faces, humble yourself and remember that you have forgotten some people's names and ask them for their name again, even if you have seen them for a whole year and never asked them, okay? Be humble enough. Uh, listen. It's one of the most humiliating, not humiliating, it's one of the most humble tasks that I continually do. People come out there and it's like, could you remind me of your name again? Sure, for the fifth time. Okay. It happens. It's okay. But find out a person's name. Eventually it will stick. Okay? But recognize too that when we started fellowship time, what we said at that time was, um, hey, you know what? Sometimes a conversation starts during fellowship time that needs to continue. Sometimes it needs to continue right into Sunday school and uh, forum time because it's that important, okay? Sometimes the conversation needs to continue um, into a phone call or a visit later that week, okay? But utilize fellowship time as a wonderful opportunity to connect with somebody 
that maybe you don't normally interact with, okay? Um, just an exhortation from your pastor as we try to get that going again, um, because uh, we've all gotten into habits, and sadly, our world has become more separated, and one of the things that we need to do in a church context is start coming back together, especially if you're not used to doing that, okay? So, um, that being said, everybody got it? Okay, I've got about four heads nodding, okay. All right, you got it, do it, get to it, okay, after the sermon. Okay, so, um, now that we're in 2 Thessalonians, I am going to ask you to stand out of respect for God's word. I do want to read this first chapter to give us context, and uh, then we will launch into the sermon today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each other of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. We are humbled that you have given us your word. And now we beg for your grace that we would be attentive to your word today. Oh, Father, when you appeared at the top of Mount Sinai... The children of Israel trembled below that mountain, seeing the awe and fury of your holiness. God, we sit here today, and we ought to be in awe and dread of your holiness. But Lord, we also recognize that we are able to be in your presence, not because of our good deeds, but Lord, because of Christ's deed for us, in that he died, he suffered, and he rose again. 
And so, Lord, we are here before you as your people. Help us to attend to you so that we would be obedient to your word. Lord, you have placed us here for a reason. Lord, some of this message may be hard for some to hear. But Lord, whether it be hard or pleasant, God, let us be attentive by your grace and by your Holy Spirit that you have given to us to guide us into truth and to activate us in the life that you have given us to live here on this earth. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have my slides there and can pull those up, that'd be great. I'm calling this message the Great Separation. The Great Separation. And, and the reason I call it that is really found in verse 5 where it says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. The word judgment is a word that evokes many emotional responses by people. Many people who have grown up in certain types of churches go around thinking, oh, the church is so judgmental. There are other people that like to quote that Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world. God sent not his son to judge the world, but that the world would be saved. We know that from um, uh, John chapter 3. In fact, if we were to turn back there, we know John chapter 3 is the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And we, we read and we quote verbatim, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then in verse 17, there's that wonderful verse, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now again, most of us as Christians actually kind of like that verse too. We like that. But what we start getting uncertain or perhaps antsy about is verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. The fact of the matter is judgment is God's ultimately. And to, to take that a little bit further, to, to remember this, God's judgment is already declared. So, in many ways, when we come to this concept of judgment, we're, we're already in, in the tension between, wait, we're not supposed to judge. God didn't come to judge. He, he came so that we wouldn't have any more condemnation. This is, this is good to us. But notice verse 19 in chapter 3 also says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in god i've always felt uncomfortable about talking about judgment because I've always had questions that, that linger and, and nag at me. And I, I'm not saying I'm going to answer all your questions about God's judgment today. But I think one of the common issues that we have when it comes to God's judgment is we neglect the concept 
that God will judge. God will judge. The day of the Lord is about God's judgment. But we always think of judgment in a negative light, don't we? Now, those of you who are Bible scholars, you know that there are two judgment days that are declared in the Bible. The one is the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat, as some people like to use that Greek word. The other one is the great white throne. What I find very interesting about it, as, as I interact with those two different judgments, is typically the, the standard is, Christians will be judged at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, okay? And the unsaved will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And so we talk about the judgment seat and it's, well, the judgment seat is about rewards. It's a judgment seat of rewards, okay? But you know what? It's not all about rewards. And, and when we come to the great white throne, oh, that's, that's, that's the unsaved. It's, it's the people that are not written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you look at that passage, it goes on and says they are judged for their deeds. In fact, both of those judgments key in on deeds. Now granted, the great white throne also ends with, and every name that was not written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Christian brothers and sisters, we must not neglect that a judgment day is coming. And the day of the Lord has always been associated with God's judgment, either in a temporary or permanent fashion. Let me just point this out to you just to, to build this uh, context for you uh, for just a moment. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 introduces us to this idea of judgment day. It says in verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire, and that fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will, he will suffer a loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, so number one, as we see the day will declare, the judgment day will declare the quality of one man's work. Okay, either good will remain or bad will be burned up. One will have reward, one will suffer loss. The, and it's talking about the works here. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We love 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of my favorite uh, chapters in all the Bible. Because it talks about if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are ambassadors for Christ. But walk it back. Walk it back to verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, again, pause for just a moment. To be at home or absent is, is, is Paul's way of illustrating whether you're here physically on earth or you're put in the grave and you're with the Lord in the air, okay? Or you're with the Lord in his kingdom, okay? So as you think about those things, this is a context. You have an opportunity while you're here on earth... And then you're with the Lord. We desire to be with the Lord, but the opportunities exist while we're here. But then notice number 10, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Sounds to me like God's going to judge what we've done, whether it be good or bad. And some of you are thinking at this point, but pastor, you've said, if anyone be in Christ, there is uh, therefore now no condemnation. I didn't say that. Paul said it through the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing that keeps us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. There's nothing that's going to prevent our eternal security with God. There's no condemnation. Satan will not step into that, that judgment room and say, that person doesn't belong there. Because God will say, what do you say, Christ? Christ says, <laughs> um, hey, they're clothed in me. They, they, are, they are given my right to be here, okay? The reason I bring this up, though, is, Christian, we need to be careful that God has called us to a life of good works. It's not works for salvation, but it's a life that is not about us, but it's about the one who saved us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 are wonderful because it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But in verse 10 it goes on and says, For we were created in Christ for what? Good works. So why do we spend our days justifying our bad works when God calls us to have good works in our lives? Why did he save us? To do that which is good. To do that which is eternal. Let me take you to one other passage that, that points this out as well. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Again, you, you might be saying, well, I don't know. Maybe. Listen, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's that phrase again, the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? Christian brothers and sisters, do you want to do good deeds that are pleasing to God? Do you? I'm asking you a question. Could you answer this question? Do you want to please God with the things and the way you live your life? Yes or no? Okay. So, 
So our minds need to be set on that. Because the Bible tells us as a motivating factor in our life. Wait, our motivating factor should be loving the Lord. Yes. And, and all our deeds are nothing if it's not in love for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13. But, notice how it says in verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And we're thinking, well, the context kind of is talking about the unsaved people here, but listen to what he says. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Okay, that's... That's one set of deeds, and then contrast to that, verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is important for us as we come to this passage in 2 Thessalonians to recognize that the day of the Lord that he the day of the Lord that he's been emphasizing through 1 Thessalonians now he clarifies that much more here in first in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's just a overview of 2 Thessalonians. There's three chapters unlike the first letter which had five chapters there's three and it appears that um, the first chapter is all about on the day of the Lord. Okay, it's all about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord when it comes, okay, it's going to affect these people this way and it's going to affect these people that way. That is the idea of judgment. The word judgment in Greek is actually pronounced krisis or crisis. Judgment, many times we, we have this whole elaborate, elaborate picture of a courtroom scene whenever we talk about judgment. But ultimately, it's the, the idea of a choice or it's a separation of two different things. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, you see the separation of, of the goats and the sheep. In these passages that we've looked at, we see the separation of the good deeds versus the evil deeds. In, in Revelation 21, uh, or actually Revelation chapter 19, is talking about the separation of those people who are found in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are not. Judgment Day is coming for everyone. You say, well, not for me because I'm saved. Wait, it says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that... The judgment. Again, I, I think we build up the, the courtroom scene a little bit too much. It's like, so are we going to be standing up there in heaven and, and there's this Megatron video up there and everybody's watching behind us. Okay, let me call up Don Emerson. Okay, Don Emerson comes up and, and he's standing there and he's like, okay. And God says, remember how you were leading singing that one day? <laughs> I mean, that's how it, it, it goes through our minds at times. It's like, is that, no, no. The point will be, the Lord, as judge, will step into our lives and separate and point out that which was done for him, which will last, and that which was not done for him, which will be consumed. 
Okay, so first chapter is talking about the day of the Lord. Number two, the second chapter talks about uh, before the day of the Lord, okay? Before that day comes. We'll look at that next time. And then chapter three is a much more practical chapter in the sense of this is how you're supposed to live today. But today we're talking about on the day of the Lord. And where I'm going to... Uh-oh, I'm getting, I'm getting signals. Oh, okay, got it, okay. All right. Um, the day of the Lord is real, okay? Please hear me. The day of the Lord is real and specific. Now, I'm going to put a little parentheses in here because as we talked about last time, it's depending on the context because throughout the Bible, when you come across the day of the Lord, there's multiple days of the Lord declared. But ultimately, the day of the Lord is real and specific and is ultimately a day of holy judgment or a holy separation which separates that which is for the Lord and that which is against the Lord. Now, in this room, I would like to, although I don't, I would like to think everybody's saved. And so when I speak to you, I am speaking to you as if you are saved. But I will recognize at this point there are some people that are still what the Bible declares, not what Lael's saying, but what the Bible declares, dead in their trespasses and sins. You are not saved yet. And you have to grapple with that and, and ask yourself, well, am I saved or not? What, what do I put my salvation on? Many people have put their salvation on their good works. Many people have put their salvation on their parents' religion. Many people have put their salvation on adhering to something or doing some good deed along the way. This is the way many people approach salvation. But those of you who are saved, what is your life showing? What is your life proving to be? Again, the day of the Lord is real and specific and is ultimately a day of holy judgment or separation in which the Lord separates that which is for him and that which was not for him. Well, with that being said, let me move on to what Paul is saying here. In verse 3, we see, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. This is not new information to us. I mean, the Thessalonians have been doing good. He's been commending them on their faith, their hope, and their love. This, this letter, he starts off by saying, hey, your faith is greatly enlarged. Your love is growing ever greater. You're doing good. But let's clarify something here, he says. Verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for a specific purpose. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. 
the, the first question that we really have to ask is, what is that plain indication? What is that proof of God's righteous judgment? Well, I think the proof of God's righteous judgment is found in verse 4. But what is it? Is it the trials and difficulties? Is that God's um, way of pointing out or the proof of God's righteous judgment, the, the righteous separation that he has? Well, that's one possibility, but it seems much better to take a look at it and, and consider it in what he points out in really three words, your perseverance, your faith, and your endurance, all modifying or all connected to in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. Why does Paul use repetitive words like persecutions and afflictions? Aren't afflictions persecutions and persecutions afflictions? Well, let me, let me give you this illustration. Persecution actually means in Greek to make one flee, okay? To make one run away. Have you ever had a bad dream and in that dream you're running away from something? That's the way it seems to be uh, the characteristics of persecution. When you face something so awful that you are, are tempted to run away from it, okay, that's persecution. Now, the other one, though, is affliction. And, and this, word, this word simply means the pressure that is put on you. How many of you feel like you've got a lot of stress or pressure in your life these days? Yeah. When you see those hands that go up, Take note and pray for those people. Because pressure is upon all of us at, at different times. But when we are feeling it, it's usually growing. Okay? So persecution and affliction. These are things that are common to all of us. But here's, here's a, a thought for you today. Because whether you're saved or not, you face those types of things in your life. There are unsaved people that face persecution where they are fleeing. Right now in our world, we have people that are fleeing all over our globe, okay? They are often called asylum seekers or refugees, all right? And when we consider them, we must recognize that that is actually part of the sin-fallen race that we live in. But I want you to note something that Pastor John Piper said. All experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience have this in common. They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. One of the things that I'd like to point out today is I, I would like to point out the difference between Christian suffering and earthly suffering. Because earthly suffering everybody feels. You know, we face death and dying, don't we? Everybody on this globe faces it. So is there a difference between Christian suffering? Or is it just the difference between our perspective? There is actually a difference. Because as a Christian, our motivation is to please God. And so there are times that we will put ourselves in a, a difficult position because we believe it's what God wants us to do. And that is suffering in a Christian sense. The Thessalonians perhaps were tempted to leave their city, and they didn't. There are Christians today that are tempted to, to leave that which God has given them a responsibility in, and they say, no, in obedience to God, I am not going to leave that. 
Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a, a missionary that goes to the mission field and things are tough. You know what? There is a difference when you choose to remain in a place that is difficult for obedience to your Lord. You are in the path of suffering. You are suffering for obedience's sake. So, this is what I believe Paul is speaking about here. The plain indication of God's righteous judgment in the Thessalonians' lives is not their persecutions and afflictions, but rather it's their perseverance and faith and endurance in those afflictions, those things that they would want to run away from. They say, no, we are staying here because this is where God has called us to, to. What are you facing in your life that you know God has put you into that you would rather get out of right now? And what things are those that I can encourage you right now to say, stick with it. Remain under it. Because if it's pleasing to God, then you're exactly where you should be. In fact, it's a plain indication of God's righteous separation. You see, the proof is the perseverance and faith through endurance in these trials. If you were to look over at, at 1 Peter chapter 1, we, we see the same idea expressed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. But we must ask... Uh, that's James, sorry. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is this so important? Because in America, we have a lot of choices. And you know what? We can thank God and we ought to thank God for our choices, but those choices are going to put you in dilemmas at times. Those choices are going to put you in dilemmas where it's like the world and my country and my opportunity are giving me these opportunities to go do these things that will be more beneficial earthly for me. And yet when I bring it up to God, I, I, I sense him saying, no, stay where you're at. What did Peter say to his audience, he said, these trials that, are, that you are going through are a proof of your faith which is more precious than gold which is uh, perishable. So many people make their decisions in life based on what is financially the best thing to do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be wise stewards, please understand that. But Christian, there should be something greater motivating us than the bottom line of your account sheet. And that's the bottom line of God's pleasure. So the proof, 
is the perseverance in faith. The purpose, though, notice in verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Wait a minute. That seems wrong, doesn't it? Are you worthy? Are you worthy of the kingdom of God? Yes. But here's the dilemma. Many times we come across that word worthy and we immediately substitute in there this word called deserve. This, this word is not about deserving. We don't deserve the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is what Jesus was talking about throughout his whole ministry. He, he, he came into the cities and he preached the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Even when he was talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, how do you, how do, you do all these things? And, and Jesus turns the question around and says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. God desires you, here's the word, fit or suitable for his kingdom. And when it says in this, this verse here, so that you would be counted worthy, you could substitute in there that you would be counted suitable or fit. How does God make us fit? How does God make us suitable for his kingdom? Well, to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. But what about once we're born again? Because that's a once and done deal. Once we've been justified, we're justified. Well, this points out that throughout our lives... Trials, difficulties that we persevere in for the sake of Jesus Christ make us all the more suitable for the kingdom of God. Are you telling me that suffering is actually part of God's plan? In God's plan? Yes, that's what I'm saying. God often uses suffering to conform us to the image of Christ... Who, for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame <laughs> and set his eyes on the joy that was set before him, despising the shame and the cross, all that he suffered. Live for Christ. Live for Christ. The purpose is to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The separation, here's the separation in verse 6. Um, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I have to wrap things up. I, there's so much more that I could say. I'm going to kind of just bullet point these last couple points. Um, I, I want you to catch one other aspect because as we talk about the separation it really does come down to um, a perspective on the day. Because the day will declare it. It says, it says in verse 7, And to give relief to the afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I want you to understand that this day that he's revealed is a two-edged sword. To us, it's a beautiful sword. To those who are perishing, it's an ugly sword. Let's talk about those who are perishing. Number one, a day of retribution. Notice in verse 8, dealing out retribution or paying back vengeance is what he says. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Those who will be dealt retribution from God in his holy wrath are those who do not know him and those who refuse to obey the gospel of God. That's a strange statement, isn't it? I thought the gospel was good. It is. Spurgeon, Spurgeon writes of this. He says it is a strange comment that, that we are to obey the gospel. And those who do not obey the gospel will be subject to God's retributive justice. Why does God say we need to obey the gospel? Because the gospel is God's command that brings life. When Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, it was not done in a mamsy-pamsy way. It was come forth. It was a command to have life. Obeying the gospel is to us who hear it a command. To those who refuse to reject it, it is a command that is disobeyed. Why would God make the gospel a command? Well, let me give you three things that that Spurgeon pointed out that I thought were very thought-provoking. Number one, he commands the gospel to us, the listeners, to encourage, encourage poor seekers to come to Christ. Those of us who do not believe we can come to Christ, we are commanded by him to come through the gospel. Number two is to embolden, is to embolden proclamation of the gospel. Christian, we are given the gospel not just to save us, not just to live in, but to proclaim. And because it is a command from God, we have that authority to tell other people, receive the word of life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. We are just messengers. The authority and the message comes from him. The third one is to secure honor for God. Honor is most acutely assumed when his word is heeded and obeyed. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. My point here is those who do not know God and those who refuse to obey the gospel of God will face it as a day of retribution. It will be a day of eternal destruction from the presence and power of God. But notice to those of us who are being saved, it will be a day of glorification. Notice in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, the same day of retribution. I'm not talking chronologically, okay? I'm not going to get wrapped up in when is that actually going to happen. I'm just saying when the day of the Lord happens, it's going to be retribution for those who reject him. And it will be day of glorification for those who accept him. And notice verse 10, and to be marveled at. Jesus Christ will be marveled at. We will be astonished and wowed like this is what I've been waiting for. And it's so much better than I could ever imagine. For our testimony to you was believed. For sake of time, I will not go there right now. But for sake of illustration as I end the sermon today. In Luke chapter 16, a parable is given about the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember this one? 
rich man lived all his life, feasting on all the good that he could obtain to himself in that life. And there was a poor man. There was a poor man. His name was Lazarus, and, and he didn't have much. But when, when it came to the day that they both died, because everybody surely will die in that, in that picture there, when he died, he went down and was suffering in hell. And it, it gives a picture of him looking up and he sees this poor man, Lazarus, being comforted in, in the, what is called the bosom of Abraham. And he calls up and he says, help, send me some water. Just even a drip would, would give me some type of relief. And Abraham says to him, Listen, we can't because there is a great chasm fixed between you and us. And even if we want to, we could not traverse that chasm. To everyone listening today, whether you're online, whether you're sitting here, whether you're saved or you're not, as long as you are living, whether we're talking about salvation or good deeds or evil deeds, the chasm is not fixed until death. How are you going to live out the remainder of your days? Is it going to be storing up that which is imperishable? Those things that are done for the Lord and in his name? Or are you going to be storing up for yourself those things that on judgment day are going to be consumed, burned up by the holy fire of God that says, that's worthless to me. And if you are not saved, what are you going to do? If you are sitting here, the chasm is not fixed for you yet. Take advantage, because once judgment day comes, once the day of the Lord comes, that chasm is fixed, and all our wants will not be able to span that chasm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. God, I know there is so much serious con considerations in here. I pray that our forum time would be beneficial as we work through some of the nuances of this. But God, I pray that you'd stir in your people a desire to please and seek you first. In Jesus' name, amen.